When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Presidencies of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special series, A Seat at the Table, I am joined today by a fellow podcaster, and we will be discussing the life of a cabinet member. So first of all, I'd like to introduce my guest, Sean of the American History Podcast. Sean, thank you so much for being here and welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to this. Absolutely. Glad to have the opportunity to talk with you again. You've invited me on your show a couple of times, and so it's nice to be able to return the favor and to have another great discussion with you. Excellent. Let's let's do this. Absolutely. Well, before we get started and I tell you which cabinet member we'll be discussing, Sean, just share with the audience a little bit about your podcast, what your podcast is about, and where folks can find you. Okay, so we started the American History Podcast in 2017. Hard to believe it seems like a lifetime ago, and yet kind of like five minutes ago at the same time. But, you know, we cover American history, but a little different. Originally, I had started off kind of chronological, and then, I don't know, about four or five episodes in, I decided, uh, man, I really don't want to wait 50,000 years before I get to, (laughs) you know, the 20th century. So I decided I would go topical. So we've done a few seasons. We're on season four right now, and we're doing World War II in the Pacific, mostly because I feel like the Nazis have been overdone. And, you know, you can just go watch the History Channel it's might as well call it the Nazi channel. If, if they even still do history over there anymore, I don't, I don't even know. Um, I mean, Nazi aliens, you know, <laughs> yeah, Nazi aliens, right? I mean, I didn't know the Nazis were aliens all at the same time. It's kind of crazy. And, and Bigfoot um, is in the mix. I'm sure too. <laughs> you know, Bigfoot Nazis. <laughs> if not, then you know what we need to call them and um, we need to get that show done and they, they owe us some money. But, exactly. <laughs> um, so, so we're doing season four right now, which is World War II um, in the Pacific. We're about 18 episodes in. And then every now and then, just recently, I've started doing these bonus episodes that are um, where I'm interviewing authors. Seems like I get a lot of email from publishers. And for a while there, I was kind of just saying straight up no to everybody. But then I kind of felt bad <laughs> that I kept saying no. And so I did one, and then one led to two, and then I think in the next, like by June 15th, I think I'm interviewing four different authors. So I'm like trying to read four different books at the same time and continuing the, the research for the podcast, and it's it's gotten crazy. It's like being back in grad school again, um, which isn't really all that great of a feeling, truth be told. <laughs> Those who've been history grad student know what I'm talking about, where it's crazy. But yeah, so that's what the show's about. And they can find us basically anywhere. Um, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. I think Amazon even is now in the game. Um, 
I think Facebook was in the game for a little bit, but I think I just got an email saying they're not doing podcasting anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah, just just go to www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com and um, they can find us there. Excellent. And I'll be sharing information about the American History Podcast on my social media around the release of this episode. You can also go to the Source Notes page for this episode and get more information there. I'll have a link as well. But thank you. And it's fascinating. And to your point, Sean, I think that there is so much emphasis on the European theater in World War II. But the Pacific theater, there was so much going on, and especially whenever you think of the scope of it, just how large the Pacific is and trying to coordinate things. And I do have to admit, I am a bit of an Admiral Halsey fan, so I really haven't had a chance to delve too much into it. But you know, listening to your recent episodes has been a great way to kind of dip my toe in the water, so to speak, because, you know, of course, with my podcast, I don't know when I'm ever going to get to World War II, <laughs> maybe 20 years from I, now. <laughs> that, that's exactly why I said I can't do this. Um, I was, I think it was like three or four episodes in, like I said, um, doing the colonial kind of background. And I was just like, man, I want to talk about the 20th century because most of my graduate student courses were on the 19th century and a little bit on the 18th. Very, I think I had one on the 20th and I was just so burned out of the 19th century. And then it's funny because kind of a side note, I did a poll. Hey, what what do you want for season two? And just somebody had thrown out there, hey, how about the Mexican War? And I thought, nobody's going to want that. And of course, that's the one they pick. And I was like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I don't want to do 19th century. But then I felt bad because, you know, you ran the poll. So I was like, okay, we're, we're going to, any future polls, I'm going to make sure at least <laughs> whatever choices are there, I'm okay with. Because that was... <laughs> That was a bad idea. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed that episode or that season, truth be told. And I'm glad, you know, you're liking season two or season four, I should say. It For a while there, it was like the Japanese history podcast and the Chinese history podcast for uh, a few episodes. But it's funny because I got a lot of people saying, hey, you know, I really like that. There's a lot of stuff I didn't know. So hopefully people did, did enjoy that. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. I think that is... Uh, and from the Western context, you know, we don't necessarily understand or, or it isn't emphasized in our narratives about World War II that there is an entire history and, and it's a long history that led up to the Pacific theater in the war. And so, you know, kudos to you for exploring that and helping folks to understand that a bit better. Yeah, I hope, hope everybody's enjoying it. Um, I know I'm, I'm enjoying it until... I just noticed the other day, I was looking at the bookshelf, how many World War II books I now have. And I was like, holy mackerel. (laughs) Oh, man. I don't know. I was thinking this might be 40 or 50 episodes. We might be 60 or 70 before this bad boy is done. But, you know, like you said, it's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. I mean, we could have done probably three episodes on Coral Sea. And I think I only did one just because I didn't want to get bogged down into the the minutiae, you know, of at 7.05, this happened. At 7.07, this happened. So if you're, you know, if there's any listeners out there that are worried it's going to get bogged down and that that sort of thing, doing my best to not really do that, to try to avoid that. And hopefully, hopefully they'll they'll find it not too boring. So, yeah, absolutely. And and that speaks to and I was on an event earlier today. We were talking about podcasting. It was all all with some other indie podcasters and, you know, talking about 
sometimes you do have to shift. Sometimes you you have a plan, you think you know where you're going, and then you have to shift and change focus. And that's okay. I mean, that's part of the fun, just being able to have something that you're really going to enjoy as a podcaster. And likewise, putting it out there, there's going to be an audience for it. There are going to be folks who are interested in it. It's not going to be everybody's cup of tea. However, it's also important to have that out there and to feel like you're doing the good work. And you know well enough with my podcast that I'm not about brevity. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, That's funny because you and um, I listen every now and then to um, another podcast. That's more about like diplomatic history. And um, boy, he's definitely not the soul of brevity either. Uh, which is funny because growing up, um, one of my best friends, his mom was Scottish. And just one day out of the blue, she just asked me, are you Irish? And I said, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one quarter Irish. Why? And she's like, because dear God, son, you've got the gift of the gab. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she was like, I, I should have known. Um, but I've, I've learned to kind of get to the point a little bit more. Otherwise, you know, I, I would never get there. So, uh, but yeah, you know, and, and I think it comes across that. When it's genuine, people people appreciate it more. Although every now and then, I mean, I'm, I'm sure both of us. I know I've gotten some some of those those folks that don't ever email, but boy, they'll they'll run to iTunes because you made one little mistake, and you're like, wait, what the heck? What you know? <laughs> what, what, what what's going on? They'll, they'll let you know, but they don't let you know. So whatever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're not making enemies, then you're you're not doing the doing this thing right. You, you've got to have at least one one star review. <laughs> I think I've got like 10 of them or something. Because every now and then one of my students will be like, oh, I checked out your podcast and checked out your reviews. And somebody said this. And I'm like, dude, don't, 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 don't tell me that. Because then I'm just going to, I'm going to, uh, no, I, I don't want to know. I don't want to know. <laughs> well, hopefully we will not get a one star review from this episode. At least two. And <laughs> at least two, at least two stars. <laughs> so, As usual with this series, I have not shared with Sean who we are going to be talking about. So he is learning just now that we are going to be talking about Samuel Dexter. Now, Sean, have you heard of Samuel Dexter before? No, which is what worried me coming on. I was like, oh my God, I am not a political historian. Um, you know, kind of like you're learning about Bull Halsey as we're going through season four. I guess Samuel, who? <laughs> well, honestly, I would have been surprised if you said, oh yeah, I know. <laughs> Man, I wish it would have been and, somebody I actually heard of, or maybe I've heard of and and just don't remember. Uh, maybe it would have been great if I'd have like, oh, of course, you know, I know him. I read a book about him, you know, a year ago. Darn. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, and unfortunately with most of these cabinet members, they're not very well known. Yeah. Some for good reason, others not so much, you know, they, they really should be remembered more, but we will see and we'll decide towards the end whether, you know, which camp Samuel Dexter falls into, if he should be, relegate it to obscurity, or if he is somebody that we need to know a little bit more about. So with that said, let's go ahead and just get into his life. So Samuel Dexter was born in Boston on May 14th, 1761. He was the third in a line of Samuel Dexter's, which of course, any genealogist I'm sure loves that there are three people and three generations of Samuel Dexter's. His grandfather was the fourth minister of the First Church and Parish in Dedham, Massachusetts, 
and he passed away a few years prior to his grandson's birth. Now, his father did not follow the first Samuel Dexter into the ministry. Instead, he became a merchant in Boston. Now, around the time of our Samuel Dexter's birth, Dexter II moved his family back to Dedham and built what is now known as the Samuel Dexter House, which is still standing today. Now, this house is next door to the parsonage of the first church and parish, which was Dexter the First Church, and our Dexter, Dexter the Third, would grow up there. So Dexter's father got involved in politics around the time of his son's birth. He started locally as a town clerk in 1761 and would also become a justice of the peace, a town moderator, and a town selectman for five terms starting in 1764. Now, 1764 was also the year that he, and this is Dexter II, would also begin his service in the Provincial House of Representatives. In 1768, he became a counselor to the Provincial Governor, a post that he retained until he resigned to join the newly created Massachusetts Provincial Congress in 1774 in defiance of the British government. So here we have, leading up to the revolution, his father was involved in some of the politics and some of the patriot, what would come to be known as the patriot cause in the revolution. Now, prior to the revolution, Dexter II would play host to other notable leaders, including John Hancock and Thomas Hutchinson. Now, it's rather cliche at this point, but I just had to mention it. George Washington actually stayed at the Samuel Dexter house on April 4th, 1776, while Washington was on the way to New York. So that is one of the many places in New England where George Washington slept. Wow. That's so, cool. you know, he's, he's, really, he's really involved with so, some prominent names in American history. Yeah. And can you imagine, like, growing up, and this is, this is how you're growing up with, you know, George Washington staying at your house. That, well, that must have been pretty neat. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, can you imagine? It's just, it, and, you know, you do have to wonder how much our Samuel Dexter understood at the time, you know, what was going on and who these folks mm-hmm. were. But to be able to say, you know, yeah, George Washington slept at my house. <laughs> Pretty awesome. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read. Now, unfortunately for Dexter II, he openly advocated in the early days of the revolution against militiamen directly confronting the British army, instead arguing for them to retreat and build up their forces before confronting the British. Because of this, he was branded as not being passionate enough about the Patriot cause, and due to the criticism, Dexter II resigned from all of his positions and moved his family to Woodstock, Connecticut. Now, the biggest irony of this is that this would be George Washington's winning strategy, was to not engage, to try and retreat, build up your forces, only fight when you had to. I mean, that's what Washington ended up proposing, and Samuel Dexter II is getting criticized for that. You're not worthy enough for the cause. Now, thus far, we've been talking a good bit about the first two Samuel Dexters, but what about our Samuel Dexter? 
Well, unfortunately, there's not much to be said because I wasn't able to find much of anything on his early life. And we do have some of this in the early Republic because that childhood period, even though we now see it in the modern context as being a formative period of somebody's life, at that time, it was just seen as, you know, oh, well, that's what has to happen until they get to the good stuff. They get to actually being an adult. Mm -hmm. So not much was recorded on that. Now, one source noted that he studied under the Reverend Aaron Putnam of Pomfret, but that's about as much detail as I have about his early life. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it. He was born. He may have studied under this guy. And then we get to, like many prominent Massachusetts men that we've discussed in this special series, it should come as no surprise that our Samuel Dexter ended up at Harvard, which he graduated from in 1781. So. We've got at least that in the mix. You know, he he was a Harvard graduate. But unlike folks that we've talked about to date in the series, however, there's absolutely nothing to say about his service during the Revolutionary War because it appears that he did not serve in that conflict. Interesting. Um, you know, I was going to say, if you're a grad student out there, this might be a guy to look into. If there's not a whole lot done on him, there you go. <laughs> if you're studying absolutely. early Republic. Maybe this is a guy to um, do a, a at least a master's thesis, if not your actual dissertation. Absolutely. And, and that's what's so fascinating about some of these early cabinet members, that there isn't much out there about them. And, you, you know, there are a couple of potential reasons. You know, maybe mm-hmm. there aren't as many primary resources available. Yeah. Maybe, you know, his papers were destroyed at some point. Mm-hmm. I... I didn't dig deep enough to really assess that situation, but that could be a possibility. It could be, and we've had figures like that in the past that, you know, yeah, there's a wealth of material, but just nobody has gone into it. And especially, it's really been in the last 10 years or so, we've had a big push for digital archives, for Mm -hmm. documents that previously you had to go to this library in on the other side of the country or even on another continent to get mm-hmm. access to. And now with the advent of the internet and digital archives, we're starting to get access to more materials just yeah. at the palm of our hands. And so it's going to be fascinating to see if maybe Samuel Dexter is one of those figures that folks can dig more into. Yeah, we'll have to wait to see it to this, the end of this episode. We might change our tune. And advice. Exactly. (laughs) Anyway, guys, nothing here to see. Who knows? Let's see. (laughs) Let's see. So, you know, he graduated from Harvard. And after that, he moved to Worcester, where he studied under Levi Lincoln Sr. Now, for our regular listeners who may recognize that name, Lincoln would go on to be attorney general under Thomas Jefferson. But at this point, he was just a lawyer in Worcester. Dexter would pass the bar in 1784 and set up his own law practice in Lunenburg, Massachusetts, which is north of Worcester. Now, only a few years after beginning his legal career, and again, this is one of those themes that we see in the early Republic. You have this young lawyer, he's establishing his career, and then he starts to get involved in politics. And he was elected to the State House in 1788, And he'd serve in that body until 1790. Now, I wasn't able to find whether it was by his choice that he only served that short term, you know, those two years, or if he was 
you know, if he tried to get reelected and was unsuccessful in that, but he did only serve one two-year term. Now, we do know that at some point in this period, you know, after he left the state house, he married Catherine Gordon. But as with many things with Samuel Dexter, when exactly they were wed, I wasn't able to find. <laughs> but they apparently had a son who was Surprise, surprise, named Samuel Dexter in 1792. Because we don't have enough of those guys. <laughs> no, apparently we've just got to keep this going and make the genealogist absolutely livid. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. But so Samuel Dexter IV was born in 1792. Apparently they were in Boston when he was born. But again, don't really have any information about whether they were living in Boston or if they just happened to be there for business or pleasure. But he was born in Boston in 1792. And so they were married at some point between him leaving the state house in 1790 and having the child in 1792. Wow. Now, around this time, so 1792, his son is born, Dexter would be elevated to the national stage when he was elected as a Federalist to the U.S. House of Representatives, and he assumed his office in that body with the Third Congress in March 1793. The only notable item that I found about Dexter's term was in 1795, when a naturalization bill was before the House. Representative William Branch Giles, who was a Democratic-Republican from Virginia, apparently put forward a suggestion that immigrants be required to renounce any titles of nobility they had previously held. To this, Dexter rose and questioned why Catholics were not required to renounce any allegiance to the Pope, <laughs> asserting that Catholicism was more dangerous to the nation than aristocracy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. How times have changed. How times have changed. And unfortunately, that anti-Catholic bias and, and prejudice is pretty prominent in America and in American politics mm -hmm. you know, well into the 20th century. So it's not altogether surprising, but it's like, really, this is, this is the only notable thing you, you have in your tenure in the House of Representatives. But none other than Representative James Madison, again, Democratic Republican from Virginia, rose in defense of the religious liberty that was an unalienable right of American Catholics. And so you have James Madison challenging Samuel Dexter and saying, no, this is wrong. We have freedom of religion here. Good for Madison. Yeah, good for Madison. And that's the thing. That's one of the things about Madison. And for folks who have been listening to the regular narrative, you know that you know religious liberty was one of the key threads throughout Madison's career. You know, that yep. was something, that was a cause that he championed. And so it's not surprising that he was the one to rise and say, no, this yeah. is wrong. We're not doing this. It appears that in the next election, Dexter's seat was redistricted. And oh. so he lost his bid for re-election because this new district, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't set up for him to win. Now, astute listeners of the podcast may remember that in late 1795, Dexter was suggested by Alexander Hamilton to President Washington as a replacement as Attorney General. However, Washington looked at this 
suggestion. And he was like, well, I'm really not going to gain much with Dexter. I mean, this was a, a one-term congressman. He served in the state house. He really doesn't bring much to the table. And so he, you know, Washington ultimately opted for Charles Lee for that post. It would be a few years before Dexter returned to political life when he was chosen by the Massachusetts General Court to serve as a U.S. senator. Dexter assumed this office in March of 1799. This put him in the Senate upon the death of George Washington that December, and Dexter was chosen by that body to write their official eulogy of the famed general and first president of the United States. His election to the Senate also put him in the right place at the right time in terms of the history of the Adams administration. By May of 1800, President Adams had had enough of the backstabbing that he experienced on a regular basis from the majority of his cabinet, in particular, Secretary of State Timothy Pickering and Secretary of War James McHenry. We've had episodes about both of them and have gone into detail about that, so I won't go too much into that. But Adams requested McHenry's resignation first, just as a reminder, you know, he requested McHenry's resignation first, which was supplied on May 13th. Then, when Pickering refused to resign upon Adams's request, he was dismissed from office. Adams, at this point, was looking for two new cabinet members who he could count on to back him up. He needed somebody he could actually trust and wasn't going to undermine his agenda. And lo and behold, there was a senator from his own home state who had mm-hmm. recently expressed his opposition to Federalist efforts to deny Adams a second term and had instead declared that, quote, those who have an opportunity of personal observation may esteem the character of Mr. Adams. As he is viewed by the great majority of Federalists, he is the most popular man in the U.S. and deemed best qualified to perform the duties of the president. So, you know, here you've got Dexter. At this pivotal time, Adams is really needing some folks who can help to back him up in the cabinet. And you've got the senator from his own home state praising him, even though you know there are many in Massachusetts, many Federalist leaders in Massachusetts who are not happy with him. Yeah. So this puts him in a good position. Despite his praise for Adams, Dexter was not Adams' first choice for Secretary of War to replace McHenry. That honor went to John Marshall of Virginia, who both Adams and his predecessor, George Washington, had turned to on multiple occasions to serve in various positions in the federal government. And, of course, we'll go into that in more detail in Marshall's episode. But for our purposes, we just need to know that despite Marshall's pleas to withdraw his nomination, like Marshall, when he learned that Adams was naming him as Secretary of War, he's like, no, I just, I really can't do it. I really, Mm -hmm. uh, just go ahead and take my name out. Well, Adams instead just kept his name in, and he sent it to the Senate, and Marshall was confirmed as Secretary of War by the Senate on May 9th. So John Adams just said, you know what, I I know you're just joking. You you really (laughs) want to be Secretary of War. It's going to be fine. It's going to be fine. (laughs) Oh, man. Gotta love it. Wonder why people were so upset with John Adams. (laughs) I can imagine why. But knowing of Marshall's objections to the post, when Timothy Pickering was dismissed, Adams then submitted Marshall's name as Secretary of State, and the Senate confirmed this nomination unanimously on May 13th. And 
again, we'll talk about this more in Marshall's episode, but he did decide to accept the appointment to the State Department. But Adams, now he had the State Department fill, but he needed somebody for the War Department. He decided to send along Dexter's nomination for the post at the same time that he submitted Marshall's name for State. Dexter, likewise, was confirmed by the Senate on the 13th, but it would take him some time to assume this new post because as was the style of John Adams, he didn't actually tell him that he was nominating him before he just sent in the nomination and it was confirmed. Mm-hmm. And so Dexter probably had to get some ducks in a row, get his affairs in order. So it took a little time for him to get ready. Now, historian Paige Smith notes that Dexter consulted with his wife once he heard the news and together they decided that he should accept the post. And that's something that we don't hear about at this stage in American history, you know, yeah. a wife being consulted and them having discussions about whether this was the right move or not. I can't think of any. I mean, Abigail Adams was pretty active with John's career, but other than that, I can't think of any that played any kind of major role at all. None, exactly. None that I, can, I, I can't think of any off the top of my head. So, wow, that, that's, that's an yeah. interesting aspect to all of this. Yeah, when I read that, I was like, I need to include this because it, it's just, it's unique. And even though we don't know much about their relationship, we don't know much about what their marriage was like, mm-hmm. this gives us kind of a glimpse that yeah. it was, it was something unique. It's mm-hmm. something that, you know, was in many ways atypical of the time. Yeah, definitely. Now, Treasury Secretary Oliver Walcott Jr., who had been in league with Pickering and McHenry during their tenures, noted that Dexter and Marshall's appointments were seen favorably in Federalist ranks, even though there were still contentions about their predecessors' forced exits from the cabinet. Walcott wrote that the incoming cabinet secretaries were seen as, quote, state conservators, the value of whose services ought to be estimated not only by the good they do, but by the mischief they have prevented. So that was an interesting take on, you know, what the the role of somebody filling a cabinet post should be. Yeah. And I think it also speaks to Walcott and and some of the other high federalists, you know, their concerns that Adams was a dangerous man, that he was <laughs> he was somebody who you couldn't trust. And so you needed some folks in place that you could trust to try and help to, well, maybe we don't need to do that. Maybe I'll lose this paper. Maybe, you know, we won't send off that order just like Pickering and McHenry had done. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, according to historian John Furling in his book on Adams, in his one mention of Dexter joining the cabinet, he mentioned that Dexter was called Ambie by his Massachusetts friends. And I didn't find a reason like where that nickname came from. And it was just, it it was interesting because it's like, where did this come from? Why do you have this detail in your one mention of this guy in your book? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it is certainly more detail than Dexter gets from historian Stephen Kurt's book on the Adams presidency, which doesn't even talk about Dexter joining Adams's cabinet. It just mentions his being considered for the attorney general position that Charles Lee finally got in Washington's cabinet. So in this book on the presidency of John Adams was not even mentioned as a cabinet member. 
So it, that that may be some foreshadowing about where this is going. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, for some strange reason, I'm kind of getting that feeling. <laughs> Grad students, never mind. <laughs> may just want to hold off on that for a moment. Yep. Now, as noted by historian Ralph Adams Brown, the entry of Dexter and Marshall into the cabinet made, quote, John Adams's official household much more serene. The president had complete confidence in and few, if any, disagreements with his secretaries. It was a pleasant change for the chief executive. So in that respect, at least, you know, this is a shift in the cabinet. It becomes less of a source of opposition to a source of support and at least, you know, at least encouragement or or just not causing too much problems for Mm -hmm. Adams. Yeah. So in June 1800, Adams and his two new secretaries traveled to the new federal city of Washington, D.C. to survey the progress and make preparations for the government move there from Philadelphia. It would be on this trip that Dexter would officially begin as Secretary of War, assuming this new office on June 12, 1800. As noted by Marshall biographer Gene Edward Smith, during this trip, President Adams, Marshall, Dexter, and Adams's private secretary, William Shaw, quote, lodged together at the Washington City Hotel, a three-story brick building that had recently opened. The hotel was located on the present site of the Supreme Court building, immediately across from the Capitol, which was still several months from completion. After a week, Adams departed to return home to Quincy, leaving his cabinet members to sort things out in Washington. So at this time, you know, it wasn't, uncommon for presidents to make that summer journey back home. The reason that he had to come, you know, this was, this was a big move. You know, this was the federal government moving from Philadelphia to this newly constructed and still under construction city. And so he really needed to get a sense of how things were on the ground. And then with two new cabinet members. And at this time, you know, we think of the cabinet right now as, you know, having 20 something people. At this mm-hmm. point, there was the Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, there was the Secretary of the Treasury, and the Attorney General was a part-time position. And then you had the newest position was the Secretary of the Navy. But that was it. That was the cabinet. And so this was a big chunk of his cabinet that was new to the job. And so he needed that time to be able to confer with them, make sure they knew what was going on, make sure they were set so that he could depart. During his time away from the Capitol, Though Page Smith notes that Adams carried on some correspondence with Dexter, it seems that the majority of his contact with the cabinet went through Marshall. For reasons that will be discussed in his episode, Marshall was essentially the point person for the president in his absence. To Dexter's benefit, this meant that he was able to focus in on his department. You know, and again, we'll talk about this more in John Marshall's episode, but because he was that point person, he was having to take on quite a bit of those additional duties as assigned versus Mm -hmm. Dexter was really able to focus in on the War Department and and figuring out what was going on and what needed to be done. Unfortunately, in terms of legacy, at this point, the tensions with France that had necessitated a military buildup were waning, and a return to the more traditional wariness of a standing army was becoming the order of the day again. So, You know, we had this time, oh, well, we're probably going to end up declaring war on France. They're going to declare war on us. We need to be prepared. 
the military was built up. But at this point, it was starting to be seen that, you know, it's probably not going to happen or any conflict. You know, at that point, we'd had the quasi war. So that was all about naval warfare. Mm-hmm. And so at this point, you know, Congress was starting to approve and they were starting to make provisions for the army shrinking down again. And as we've discussed in other episodes of the special series with Dexter's predecessors at the War Department, the size of the War Department at this time was minuscule. You know, there were only a few clerks and the secretary. And so he really, this wasn't a place and this wasn't a time that he could really make a major impact as the Secretary of War. Now, Dexter would get a chance at running a larger department as with the resignation of Oliver Walcott as Treasury Secretary at the end of the year of 1800, Dexter was nominated and confirmed to take over for him. Thus, unless there's someone that I'm missing, and I tried to do a bit of research, but I wasn't able to really find anything, but it seems that from what I can see, Samuel Dexter is, to date, the only person to serve as Secretary of the Treasury and Secretary of War. My apologies for the intrusion, but this is future Jerry. After recording this episode, I finally realized that there was at least one other person who had served as both Secretary of War and Secretary of the Treasury, and it's actually a pretty big name. Though we haven't come across him yet in the narrative, William H. Crawford will be someone who we will be talking about a good bit in the not-too-distant future. But he was the second person that I found. There could be more. But just want to give a clarification that Dexter was not, in fact, the only person to have this distinction. And Crawford would definitely make more of a name for himself and have a, a legacy that we'll have to explore in a bit more detail when we get to him. But in the meantime, I did want to clarify my apologies and back to the episode. Now, there was little more for Dexter to do at Treasury than keep the lights on as it was known by the time that he took over the Treasury Department that Adams had not been reelected. Due to the incoming president, Thomas Jefferson's chosen candidate for the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, facing staunch opposition in the Senate from Federalists, Jefferson opted to wait until Congress was not in session to appoint Gallatin in a recess appointment and then seek confirmation after Gallatin had been in the post for a good portion of the year. So he was really thinking, okay, well, they don't want to put him into the post right now, but if I can get him in and he can show, okay, well, I've been working for the last few months, here's what I've done, I can actually do a good job, then they would be more likely to confirm him. But that meant that he was going to have to operate for a little bit because Congress was in session. He needed somebody to serve as Secretary of the Treasury. Thus, it required the cooperation of Dexter to retain his post at Treasury after Jefferson's inauguration. And that's something that, you know, first of all, John Adams would say, that's never a good idea. Look at what happened to me. But it was also, it was seen, it wasn't a permanent, it was going to just be temporary until he could get Gallatin in place. So with that, Dexter did agree to serve. And though he handed over the War Department to Henry Dearborn, he did remain as Secretary of the Treasury until May 13th when Gallatin took the reins. Now, in a final note on his tenure in the cabinet, Dexter was honored with election to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1800. 
So at least he was able to achieve that. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that's that's one thing, you know. Poor guy. <laughs> poor guy. It was not the right time for yeah. him to be in the cabinet. And so we'll we'll have to talk about that when we get to the end. <laughs> but from the the sources that I've been able to find, upon his departure from the administration, he resumed practicing law first in Roxbury before moving to Boston in 1805. He would at times appear in a legal capacity before the higher courts in the state of Massachusetts, as well as the U.S. Supreme Court. Beyond his professional career, Dexter became an ardent advocate for temperance and presided over the first formal organization to support the cause in the state of Massachusetts. He also opposed the embargo that was put in place by the Jefferson administration and then the later Non-Intercourse Act, apparently going so far as to challenge them in court. As time went on, though, and particularly with the declaration of war against Britain in 1812, Dexter found himself switching his political allegiances. As he was a supporter of the War of 1812, Dexter left the Federalists and became a Democratic-Republican. Now, Dexter ran unsuccessfully as a Democratic-Republican for governor in three subsequent years, and so this was 1814 through 1816. At this point, the, um, the governorship of Massachusetts was a one-year term, and so he ran three times at that point. In the first election, he only lost by around 10,000 votes. The next year, he managed to narrow the gap to just under 7,000 votes. And the year after, he only lost by 1,945 votes. Wow. Sadly for Dexter's historical legacy, or lack thereof, in the one source in my library where I have gubernatorial returns, which is where I got those numbers from, the losing candidates in each of these elections is listed as Lemuel Dexter. L-E-M-U-E-L. <laughs> I did confirm through an online resource made available by Tufts University, though, that our Dexter was, in fact, the candidate in question in all three elections. So it's bad enough when you're not even mentioned, but to have your name be misspelled three times. No respect, as Rodney Dangerfield once said. <laughs> no, no respect. respect no respect. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Poor Dexter. <laughs> so Dexter, though he has been rather forgotten by history, was not forgotten by contemporaries, and President James Madison apparently offered him a post as U.S. Minister to Spain in 1815. Wow. Dexter did decline this appointment, though, and unfortunately for him, the next year, and his last run for the governorship, would be the last election that he would live to see, as he passed away on May 4, 1816, at the age of 54, likely at his son's home in Athens, New York. Now, Sean, it's not going to come as any surprise to you that there is some conflict in the sources here. Oh, wow. No, really? <laughs> no, really. One source said he died on May 3rd, and another said that he died in Boston. But I'm choosing to go with the most consistent ones I've seen and say that he died on May 4th in Athens. He was buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, his wife, Catherine, would go on to live to the age of 80 before she passed away on November 2nd, 1841. And it appears that she is buried with her husband in Cambridge. Though, as with so many facts about Dexter's life, 
we're going on sparse information here. So surprise, surprise. We're going to assume that she was buried with her husband. In terms of his legacy, <laughs> he did receive one vote from the town of Westbrook in the 1817 Massachusetts gubernatorial election, despite that he was, in fact, dead. <laughs> <laughs> But he had one staunch supporter. I don't care. I'm voting for Samuel Dexter. And hopefully he spelled his name right. I hope so. I hope so. Talk about adding insult to injury, man. But he had had that one president of his fan club. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to vote for him anyways. Now, as part of our Dexter's legacy, I once mentioned that his son, Dexter IV, like his father, and again, like so many young, well-to-do men in Massachusetts at the time, went to Harvard. Surprise, surprise. What may surprise you is that, despite the influence of the Dexter name in Massachusetts, Dexter IV moved to Michigan, where he was involved in the founding of the cities of Byron and Saginaw, as well as, of course, Dexter, Michigan. Now, founding cities was apparently a thing in the family as our Dexter's nephew, Andrew Dexter Jr., was involved in the founding of Birmingham, Alabama. Andrew Dexter Jr., however, was also known for committing one of the first major financial frauds in U.S. history, but we won't go down that rabbit hole today. (laughs) Wow. Now, our Dexter was honored with having Dexter, Maine, named after him upon its founding in 1816. So that was still while it was a part of Massachusetts. And that was one of the years that Dexter was running for governor. So apparently, you know, there was at least enough support for Dexter that folks in the main district decided, yeah, we should name our town after him. The U.S. revenue cutter Dexter was commissioned in 1830. And it was also, of course, named after Samuel Dexter, our Samuel Dexter. This ship would be in service until it was sold in February of 1841 which was also the year that his wife, Catherine, passed away you know, later on in the year. Yeah. Dexter was also depicted on a 50-cent paper bill that was issued as a series of low-denomination currency called fractional currency during the Civil War. So, you know, oh, wow. at least he got some recognition, you know, as yeah. Secretary of the Treasury, but it was a 50-cent paper bill. <laughs> and that, my friend is the life and career of Samuel Dexter. (laughs) Interesting. (laughs) So, first impressions before we dive into our categories. Wow. Um, Yeah, I I think it's interesting that he switched from Federalist to Democratic-Republican, even though I guess you could say that's kind of par for the course, right? The Federalists kind of die out, especially at the national level going right around that time that he switched. So it's kind of a trend that's going on. Supporting the War of 1812 kind of, again, puts him in that that next group, I guess. He didn't serve in the Revolutionary War. So then you have that next group that comes in that that almost became more warlike or hawkish because they, I guess you could say they were trying to live up to the the what their their forefathers had done, so to speak, right? So, again, not too surprising there, although I guess he was old enough that he could have served in the the latter stages of the Revolutionary War. I mean, he would have been, what, 
15 in 1776, so he could have been a drummer boy or something like that. Uh, message runner, probably. I don't, I don't think they would have been too upset. It's not like today where you'd have to have proof of your age and all that. You just tell them, I'm old enough. Okay, sure, you're old enough. Um, exactly. So, so far, I, I, not too surprising that he's forgotten, which is kind of sad. I mean, he, but interestingly, he wasn't really forgotten in his day, right? He, he still gets a vote. We laugh about that, and I think it's it's hilarious, but um, he still gets a vote for, for a governor. Um, he gets on a 50-cent note several decades later. So, so yeah, he's not all that forgotten, but I wonder how much are, how much is in the archives. You know, how, how much information could you actually find on this guy? And, and, and it probably speaks, my question is probably answered just by the fact that no one's really talked about him yet. You would think this time period has been well documented, but at this point, there's not really a whole lot of new figures coming out. So yeah, poor guy. Yeah. Yeah, well, and and especially where it sounds like his family and future generations, you know, made that move west. And sometimes mm -hmm. with that, you know, just like with any move, even in the present day, but especially then, you know, you think about transportation and all that at the time, it is quite possible that maybe he did have some papers that were either destroyed in the transit or lost or whatever, or maybe they just didn't, awesome. you know, yeah just didn't realize this is something that's important that should be preserved. So, yeah. and, and, and it's a shame because there, you know, this is one of those that we really, I don't know that we really get to Dexter and understanding him as an individual, but let's go ahead and, and start talking about him. And, and because I think this really, where we're going is kind of, going into our first category, which is the whole picture. And okay. this round looks at the overall career and character of the cabinet member. And so each of us can give him 10 points maximum in this round. So, okay. Okay. you know, and starting with that, you know, the lack of detail and the lack of really getting to understand him, you know, what, Sean, what do you think in terms of his overall career and character? What, what can we say about him? Man, not not really much, right? I, I mean, he was obviously somewhat important. I don't think you get to be Secretary of the Treasury or Secretary of War if you're not at least somewhat important. You know, that's that's. I mean, if we look at modern day times, Secretary of Defense, somebody like Dick Cheney under H. W. Bush, who later became Vice President, obviously um, Robert Gates, who was head of the CIA and then Secretary of Defense. So, I mean, these are these. That's kind of an important position. So um, he must have at least had some respect. Now, I realize Adams was kind of on his last legs there, 1800. But I don't know that Adams knew that. So, you know, but man, there's just not a lot of detail, right? Yeah. So what, what are we going to say? Maybe five or six? I mean, he's just, there's just not a lot of meat on that bone. Yeah. And, and to your point, and, and it's a little... You know, we don't know what we don't know. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, you know, kind of where we're at with him. You know, obviously there was something, you know, he, he did get elected to a term in the state house. He got elected to a term in the U.S. House of Representatives. He ended up in the Senate. He ended up in not one, but two cabinet positions. Wow. He ended up being unsuccessful 
candidate for governor three times, but he was starting to inch forward. And mm-hmm. if he had lived longer, it's quite possible that, you know, maybe he would have been in 1817 instead of just getting one vote, he could have won the election. Yeah, you know, I actually think he might have won alive. I, yeah. I, I do. I think he might have won that one. Uh, maybe if not 17, definitely by 18, I think he wins that. So, wow. And to have been, you know, and also thinking about that offer to appoint him as U.S. Minister to Spain, you know, that was still a pretty important and prominent role. So, you know, obviously there's something there and and he, you know, we can't say that he was completely unsuccessful. He he had some successes and he achieved things that many people of that time, many people of the modern era haven't. So right. there's obviously something there. Yeah. Definitely not a full 10. You know, it's got to be somewhere, I, I would say five at the, at the most. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard to tell. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I want to say five, but then again, there's there there there's something there we just don't know. Like you said, what we don't know, five or six maybe max. Um, kind of feel bad. Let's say five and a half. Poor guy. <laughs> five and a half pity vote. <laughs> there you go. Give him that extra half point. And I'll go ahead. I'm just going to go a little lower than five just because, you know, and it's a shame that we just don't have more details. I just, I feel like I need to just give him a little below five. So I'm going to give him a 4.5. Okay. But cool. that at least get, that gets him up to 10. So that's, okay. that's a good start. All my, my former students, if they're listening, they're like, what the heck? Worswick was always the, the hardest grader around. He softened up in his old age. Probably, <laughs> probably. <laughs> you're 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 getting the softer touch now. Yep, yep. <laughs> I'll play the good cop today. Now, this one I think it's going to be hard to be generous with. So the next round is our go getter category. This round looks at the impact of the cabinet member during their time in the cabinet. And again, like with the first round, ten points maximum can be awarded by each of us. Wow. But yeah, Sean, what what do we say about his? (laughs) I mean, there's just not, gosh, it's not that there's not a whole lot of meat on that bone. There's just, I don't even know if there's a bone there. (laughs) Holy mackerel. It's like a a wishbone. (laughs) Yeah. The meat has been sucked off. Um, There's really nothing there, right? Again, that we know of, but, you know, he was treasury secretary for five months. I mean, I can't yeah. imagine there was a whole lot to do during that time. Kind of the Secretary of War, not really much to do for a good four or five months that he was there. So, yeah, I'm going to give him, man, a two. And that's the thing. And and again, this is an unfortunate place for Dexter to be in. You know, he became Secretary of War when we were on a trajectory of shrinking the army. Yeah. And yeah. there was, you know, the tensions were starting to ease. So even mm-hmm. though, and there's always business to do, and especially with a small department like the War Department, because the War Department, and, you know, this is something that we talked about in other episodes, you know, the War Department was the place not just dealing with the Army, but also with negotiations with Native peoples. There was intelligence coming into the 
war department. So there was a good bit for folks to do in terms of paperwork and correspondence. Mm-hmm. But do you really get to say that you had a major impact because you made sure the papers were filed and the correspondence was responded to and you have the right stamp on things? You don't really get to say that. And then likewise, when he takes over the Treasury Department, and this is a place that potentially because the Treasury Department was the largest department in the executive branch at the time, but he got in just as they realized John Adams was not getting reelected. This administration was in its final days. And so then again, it becomes just make sure the papers are filed, make sure the bills are paid, make sure that things are taken care of. And while that's great, and it could have been, I mean, there were people who were less capable. You know, we talked about James McHenry in his episode that he was seen as being inept. There are people in the history of the cabinet that just really mess it up, especially if it's a place like this, that there's not really much motivation to succeed. You know, you know, you're about to be out of the job. He didn't do that. He made sure things were taken care of. And he even agreed to stay on for a little longer to help Jefferson from the other party. And so he obviously had a sense of duty and responsibility. But that said, you can't award many points here. He, even within this cabinet, John Marshall was the one, he was the trusted one for President Adams, yep. even in this short time frame. And so I think I'm going to join you in that too. You know, he, he does deserve credit for, and it's ironic that he's the only person who was Secretary of War and Secretary of the Treasury, but yeah. he really didn't do much in either office. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, with our next category, and Despite the fact that we have so few details on Samuel Dexter, I think we actually do have something to talk about in this one. So this category is our hot seat category. This round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the cabinet member. And this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office in the cabinet. And so this is where we're going to subtract points and we can subtract up to 10 points each based on how we feel in this category and any disgrace that he has. So, Sean, what do you think in terms of disgrace? I don't see any. So there was the the one, um, the only thing that we really know about his tenure in the U.S. House of Representatives, that he came with this naturalization bill and said that we should include Catholics and they should have to renounce their faith because it's pledging allegiance to the Pope, and that's worse than aristocracy. <laughs> so I, that... Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe one, but, uh, you know, I mean, I'm thinking for his day, he's pretty typical. That would not have been any... That would have seen been seen as pretty normal, actually pretty milquetoast for, for his time and period. Now, if we're talking about for us today, it's it's not so milquetoast, but... Um, yeah, I mean, maybe one or two points, but you know, he didn't have any sex scandals. He wasn't, um, he wasn't a drunkard. He wasn't out there dueling and shooting people. Alexander Hamilton, um, Aaron Burr, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, yeah, I mean, man, maybe maybe two points subtracted for him for that, but 
other than that, I mean, he seems fairly upstanding, uh, especially for, for, you know, his time, time period. And I think I'm going to go just a little lower. I'm going to subtract 1.5 points because, and to your point, Sean, this, this was common. This was something that was pretty standard in American society at the time. And we don't know really how, how strong this prejudice was in Dexter. Was we it don't even know if, really there or was this a, like a political move? Um, maybe a political calculation on his part. He is from Massachusetts. It's fairly Protestant, you know, um, even, even though this isn't, you know, this isn't 1650, obviously, but um, yeah, I mean, one, maybe two points. You know what? I'll agree. One and a half points. What the heck? Yeah, I, I could, I could see that. Yeah. And, and that's the thing. It's just, it, you know, we don't know how, how, you know, if he was marching in anti-Catholic parades or involved mm-hmm. in organizations, we don't know that he was. So we can't really, we can't assume that this was a, a staunch conviction that he was really involved in getting anti-Catholic bills in, you know, we just have this one mention, but I think we do need to take some points off just because, and, and here you have James Madison coming up and saying, this is wrong. We don't need to do this and challenging. So, you know, I think we, I think one and a half points from each of us. So that means he's losing three points in this round, which brings him to a score now of 11. Okay. <laughs> now, here's where he has an opportunity to earn a few more points because first of all, we award points in terms of tenure of office. So this is the entire time that a cabinet member served in a full-time capacity. And that counts for the points in the round. We we round the number to award the points. Now, one thing to note here, because this is, this is one of those unique situations. And whenever I put together the criteria for the series, I knew that we were going to have some instances like this. So he was secretary of war first, then he became secretary of the treasury while he was secretary of war. And so he held both positions at the same time. And then he ended up handing off the War Department and then had a little longer as Secretary of the Treasury. So in the case that a cabinet member served in two or more full-time positions in the cabinet that did overlap, you know, if, if these would have been two completely separate times, com- two completely separate tenures, we would have totaled both of those tenures. But where they overlap, okay. The overlap time will not, it will be unduplicated. So they'll only, he'll only get credit for the actual time of service. So this, this is just trying to say, you know, he, he was in the cabinet for X amount of time and, and just taking that into account, not giving him double credit. So looking at the actual dates for him, just so that we will be clear. So he started as the, Secretary of War, um, the date we had was June 1st, 1800, and okay. he he left that office on March 4th, 1801, Okay, and then he became the Secretary of the Treasury on January 1st, 1801, and served until 
May 13th, 1801. So actually coming up on <laughs> the anniversary of that. Uh, we're recording this on May 7th. So <laughs> coming up on his anniversary. Oh, nice. But with that and rounding, you know, it wasn't a full year, but we're going to get, go ahead and give him credit for a full year. So he gets one point in this category. Okay. And so we have a couple of other bonus points that our cabinet members can earn. They can get one bonus point if they served in more than one full-time cabinet post. And so he actually does get this one. You know, he, he did serve in more than one full-time cabinet position. And he also gets a point because he served as a full-time cabinet member in more than one presidential administration. And so this is a funny one for him because, you know, <laughs> it, it wasn't for long. It was only for, you know, those couple of months. But it's enough that, yes, he does earn that extra point as well. Excellent. And so with that, he gets to a total because um, the third bonus point is if he became president. And no, he did not luck out to that one. So <laughs> nope. he ends up with a grand total of 14 points. Wow. Now, looking at some of our other cabinet members, just to give us some perspective. So... This is not, he actually isn't the lowest score. Um, William Bradford only earned nine points. Uh, Charles Lee only earned 11. And they were both uh, attorney general or, or attorneys general. And so because that was a part-time position, they really didn't have much influence. Yeah. But he's definitely not our, our highest thus far, Alexander Hamilton and Henry Knox at 29 points total. So he's definitely on down there. Wow. But we do have to ask ourselves the question, after all I've shared about Samuel Dexter's life and career, what we've discussed, do you think that he is notable enough or impactful enough to earn a seat at the table of the cabinet all-stars? Nope. Sorry there, Samuel, <laughs> my friend. Um, I got to say, I, I like him, and I think it'd be interesting if we, you know, we had more information but yeah he's definitely um he's not going to get invited to the all-star dinner that's for sure no if he did it would basically be hey we need the seat warmed for a few minutes for stepping out uh, yeah. we'll come back <laughs> yeah which, which he seems pretty good at um from what we've seen he can keep the seat warm um he'll dot the i's and cross the t's for you but um sad to say just yeah he's definitely not going to be in the all-star nope and with that we are done with this episode and i hope you know that and again it's always interesting when we get folks like samuel dexter that you know we don't have many details on they really didn't make that large of an impact but i hope sean that there have been some some nuggets of interest and and you know i think we get a little bit at least you know we don't get as much as we would want, but to see somebody on this political rise and to be present for so many events, to be a part of the the story of so many prominent people, you know, I, I think that there is something that we can take away from this with that. Yeah, he, he seems to have had an interesting life, and it's kind of sad that it was it was cut short. You never know. Uh, he could have been Massachusetts governor. 
and then who knows what? I mean, we, we'll just never know because he died fairly young, even for those days. I mean, still only in his fifties, but yeah, he's just just one of those obscure figures. He 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 lived through a lot of interesting stuff. He saw a lot of interesting things. Uh, definitely would have been cool to have over to barbecue and talk to. Right, lived through the the revolution. War for Independence saw all the you know Articles of Confederation, the, the the early Republic era, served with Adams, uh, a little bit, few months with with Jefferson. So that must have been pretty cool. But yeah, he just just not not a whole lot there, right? Exactly. But Sean, thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and thank you so much Welcome. for your insight and the wonderful conversation. As always, it's just such a pleasure to talk with you. Been great. I'd love to come back. Just let me know. Absolutely. And hopefully next time, it'll be somebody with a few more details than this one. (laughs) Hopefully somebody I've actually known or or, or knew of. Uh, If if I know them, then we've got problems because, man, I'm not that old yet, even though my students... (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Hopefully you did know them personally. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But folks, please do check out the American History Podcast. As Sean said, season four with the war in the Pacific for World War II. Just an amazing series. So do check that out. And again, I will have links on the sources for this episode on the website, as well as on my social media, I'll be sharing information. But thank you so much again, and thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks also to Christian of Your Podcast Pal for his audio editing work on this episode. If you'd like to enlist Christian services for editing your podcast or audio project, check out his website at yourpodcastpal.com. And until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.